Amen. Thank you, Zach. Uh, we are grateful that you're here this morning. Uh, so thanks for being around. I don't know, many people are, are traveling on a weekend like this, so maybe you travel the opposite way and you're here. If that's the case, thank you uh, for making time on a Sunday to be with us. Hopefully you're enjoying time with friends or family, or maybe you're here for the game uh, tonight. Uh, but uh, either way, we are hopeful to be of benefit to you. That's been our prayer. Our hope is, is that as much as we can be, we're going to be clear about the hope that we have and the hope that we have not only for ourselves, but for all of the world, all of those who would believe. In a moment, I'm going to look at the book of Romans with you. So Romans chapter 1 is where you could uh, turn, and as we're going, I'd just like to say my name is Lance, and if we haven't got a chance to meet, I would love to do that. You could reach out and give contact info through a connect form, or just reach out to the church, and it would be great to find time with you. Uh, I hope as well that you are getting settled into new routines. You know, the fall is, uh, is somewhat here, or at least a Florida version of fall. We still call it fall, even though it's, it's delayed a lot. Although I got to say, the last couple days, I went out yesterday in the morning, and uh, I felt a little bit like my dog. One of my favorite things is to watch my dog in the yard. Dogs are forever hopeful and curious, and the thing they're most hopeful and curious about is smells. You know, you ever watched, I just watch them sometimes, and uh, there's, he'll, just, he'll just lift his head up, and I can just see him, his nose is dragging him to some glory that's elsewhere. You know, he just, he can just see it. His whole face is excited from some smell. And uh, yesterday in the morning when I walked out, I don't know if you have this yet, but I thought fall is somewhere. Like it's out there. There's cooler weather. It might get below 70 sometime in the, in the near years or months or something. But I, I felt like that. My heart and my mind were filled with a little bit of optimism that uh, we're going to enjoy all of the fruits of Florida weather soon. And that may sound negative. I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, the summer's great too. You can do things. That's not insincere, I promise. Romans chapter 1 is where we're at. Romans chapter 1. We have taken a couple of weeks to introduce the book of Romans and then consider what it has for us. And this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 8 through 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. And in a lot of ways, this is getting down into the specifics of two things. The specifics of why the letter was written, what is the motivation of the Apostle Paul in writing it. And I think that we're going to make some, some jumps or some leaps, some applications to, from his specifics of why he's writing this to generally how he views mission. And then second, we're going to get the first, and I think an overriding statement, one that, that really ends up casting itself forward across the entirety of the book, 16 and 17, which is a first look at the way the gospel will be used in Paul's life and in the life of the church. So the first thing we're going to consider as we read 8 through 17 and to be watching for is what I might call motivations or marks of mission. So marks of a mission, that's a big category, a heading. And then next, we're going to look at means, the means of mission. So what, what is Paul going to use and how is the gospel going to function? So I want us to be thinking about those two big headings of categories as we read. I'd love for you to follow along. I'm going to start in the eighth verse and then stop at 17. This is Romans chapter 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a customary thing at this moment for us to pause and to pray. 
to bow our heads in humility, to realize that we're not spiritual enough, impressive enough, smart enough to take all that we need from Scripture, but we are hopefully smart enough to humble ourselves before God who's promised to love us well through Scripture. Our confession, your and mine, our shared confession concerning this word is that it's living, that it's active, that it can cut down into the very center of us, can separate joint, marrow, bone. In other words, we can be changed and transformed. That's what we say about this book. But I know as well the tendency to go through the motions in a moment like this. You've heard me say a lot of words. You've got a lot going on in life. And so I want to pause and pray, and I wonder if you wouldn't pray with me, that we would have hearts that were positioned correctly, that the Spirit of God would be kind in a way that only He can be, and that we would learn together and really benefit uh, from this passage. So, So let's pray. God, we acknowledge that it's not going to be our effort, our smarts, our spiritual strength that will let us benefit the most this morning. In fact, we are often dull to spiritual things. We don't listen as closely or clearly to you as we ought. Many of us, God, seem to be hell-bent on learning the hard way nearly every lesson. We are sometimes stubborn and obtuse, willfully. And so I ask this morning that you would be gracious to us, that our confession The things that we say to be true, what we're holding on to, what we know and have experienced in the past of your faithfulness, especially through Scripture, you'd be merciful and you'd bridge the gap, that there would be as small of an experience gap as possible this morning. We don't want to confess one thing, but just go through the motions in our real day-to-day. So I ask this morning, help us to see Paul and his motivations for mission, that we would consider these things, we would grow for them, from them, and that you would help us. We want to learn. And I pray as well that you'd convince us of the power of your gospel, that where we find ourselves inadequate or weak, that we would lean more toward the power that you've given us, not to neglect it, but to expect you to to work in our midst because you are powerful, you're glorious, you're other, you're beyond us in every single way. And so God, please send your spirit in power. Holy Spirit, come, open eyes, give us ears and soften our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I said the two major headings of this passage, the way that I want to look at it together, and I'm going to get going because there's a number of these. Two major headings. First one I would just call motivations of mission or marks of mission, because that's what Paul has. In his mind, he has a focus. He is dead set on getting to Rome, and so he's writing them ahead of time. And he's, he's stirring, he's been cultivating his heart about this hope that he has in the future of being beneficial and helpful. So this idea, this concept of mission, we're going to see, look at a list of some marks, some motivations that he's revealing to the Romans as he's writing to them. And then after that, we're going to look at what he seems to understand and hopefully is attempting to to show the Romans and get them to understand is that there are means to mission. In other words, for the mission to be accomplished, there are certain things that will work and other things that won't. So first, let's look at the marks of mission or motivations. It's not a small thing in verse 8 that Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He has reasons to thank God, he says, because their faith has been proclaimed in all of the world. And I would say that it is not a throwaway line to realize that for Paul, one of the motivating factors for him in mission, the thing that keeps him going, is to stop and remember to be thankful. Gratitude for what God has already done, gratitude for promises that he has made into the future is going to be a non-negotiable for those who desire to walk faithfully with God and to continue on being helpful. Now, why do you suppose that gratitude needs to be mentioned first? Why does Paul want them to know he's thankful for them? Well, I think it's a twofold thing. One, appreciation and gratitude towards others is one of the most effective ways to get to their soul. There is far too little encouragement and gratitude in our world. I don't know any single person who says something like this, you know what I hate? 
I hate when people take time out of their day to really recognize me and what I've done and to tell me they're grateful. Oh, that just gets me. It is nearly always the opposite, that for many of us, though we're soldiering on, and we might be the kind of people who said, no, 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 I don't need to be thanked, don't worry about it, I'm doing this for the crown in heaven, you know, don't recognize me too much here. Most of us, when we're honest and vulnerable about it, realize how motivating it is, how life-giving it is to be genuinely thanked, to be seen, to be noted, and then to have someone say, I want you to know that when I think of you, I'm grateful. One of the marks of mission has to be at the beginning and the outset, gratitude, because it is one of the quickest and best paths to a person's soul. It is hard to be of benefit to someone if they feel overrun, overlooked, taken advantage of. That kind of thing will poison an opportunity that you might have to care for someone very, very quickly. Second, and I think we maybe all felt this as way, gratitude is a mark of mission because gratitude for the individual is one of the most effective ways to cut the curse of pride out of what we're doing. Humility is one of the most loved things by God. The Bible says it directly. God says, here's what I love, humility. Here's what I hate, pride. I oppose it. So we should all think to ourselves, well, how do we get humility? And I would say that one of the chief ways that we can get to humility is to practice gratitude. It's why Paul starts out, there's a lot of things that he hasn't done yet. In fact, he's about to say, I wish I could come to see you. I'm longing for it. He has a a growing impatience in him for what has not been done But he knows that proper humility starts with him thanking God for what has been given. Now, this is an odd thing sometimes, and maybe I'm only feeling it in me, but maybe you felt this. Have you ever tried to be of benefit to someone or do some good thing or tried to help in a particular way and found it very difficult? Maybe the person is more stubborn than you thought. Maybe even getting to them is more difficult. You have some stuff you think would help. They don't believe it would help. Maybe you do have things that would help and they think it would help too, but just getting it to them doesn't work very easily. Have you ever been in a position where you feel very off-put, very put out, I would say, at the moment that you're trying to help someone such that you're actually kind of a mean person in the moment that you're helping? I find in me that sometimes all that is difficult about being of benefit to someone makes me very ungrateful. I can complain very easily about the situations that God has placed me in to serve. I can be frustrated very quickly with the very people that I know I'm trying to help. Because if they would just do everything that I wanted them to, it'd be easier to help them and I could, I could be a little bit, I could get out of this a little quicker. Gratitude. A genuine gratefulness to God for all that has been accomplished for the opportunity to serve in the first place, is going to cut the sin of pride of what you deserve, of how effective you thought you could be, of what that person ought to do to realize what you're doing for them. If you, and I would just say this, if you plan to be effective for God in his world, in his kingdom, in his mission to help other people for the long haul, you better have a wonderful practice, an engine of gratitude, because you will get burnt out very, very quickly. I don't mean it to be too negative on this, but the fallen world is a very difficult place to live, let alone to help problems. And a lot of, a lot of ministers, a lot of people who are helpful harbor a very hidden cynicism, a sadness, an annoyance, a concern that they can't believe that they have to keep doing this for these people. And that is a sad place to start any mission. So Paul sets down in a course, one, be grateful because it is the quickest path to actually benefit someone's soul. They they love the life that comes with being thanked. And then second, I think Paul probably knows that he's got to start with thankfulness or he may fall prey to a kind of pride that cuts off his mission life. So that's one mark, one characteristic, one motivation. Start with gratitude. I'll give a little application maybe for some of these. I think to myself, uh, I heard a a quote one time, I believe it was a Spurgeon thing, because at one point I wanted to read everything that he'd ever uh, written. And I don't know if you know this, but Spurgeon, he wrote a lot. 
So actually, now I'm just confessing. I gave up. I gave up. I just want you to know. I just gave up. Not going to happen. I remember him reading, writing one time that one of the most grotesque things is for shepherds put over sheep. By God, God's sheep, God's shepherd put there for them to spend a majority of their time complaining to him about the sheep that they've been given. And I think to myself, what a temptation it is sometimes to be ungrateful. Or, for instance, in a church context like this, so many of us put a lot of time and effort and plans into particular ministries, events, we create forms, we plan food, community groups are starting up this week. That means that a number of people in this room and in other rooms across, they're, they're spending time cleaning their houses. And sometimes what cleaning their houses means the panicky kind of what Sarah and I call white tornado. You know, that moment where you think to yourself, okay, this just won't do. People are coming in, it looks like this, and then you spend 7.47 minutes just throwing everything you can. You know, you white tornado the whole thing. That's the thing that they're feeling, right? They are inviting people, praying for people, opening homes, doing this, and then sometimes it flops. The people that you wanted to come didn't come. The people that should have come didn't come. They, they had some other thing going on. Maybe the attendance has been lower than it should have been. Giving's been lower than it should have been. There are a lot of potential moments to get, rather than an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude, uh, a, a feeling of gratitude, there are a lot of moments to think, man, I deserve better than this. Doesn't God see what I'm trying to do here? Don't these people see what we're trying to do here? And so I would, and I'm saying this to myself first and foremost, and I'm definitely saying it to you, remember that to be helpful and beneficial, we must have genuine gratitude. Okay, so much to say there. I wish that we had a long, longer time to think about thankfulness, but try to stir gratitude. Second, I think that what Paul's demonstrating for us is that one of the marks and motivations of mission is prayer. And just like thanking God is not a throwaway line, he says in verse 9 and 10, for God is my witness, which is in of itself a, a recognition of prayer. He's living his life before God. He's inviting him in. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. With that, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul is committed that just as much as he's going to put effort into getting around the world to proclaim the gospel, as much time as he's going to take to converse with people over things, that he is going to be a prayerful person. He mentions them without ceasing, always in his prayer. He's asking God for the success of his mission and for them. Maybe a confession time for just a moment as well. It is far too easy to be busy in mission and ministry and in life, way busier than we are prayerful. And I would say that one of the marks of ineffective ministry or mission or desire for other people, one of the marks of ineffective ongoing busybodiness would be the attempt to live a prayerful mission or prayerless mission life. This is a topic that runs deep all the way to the soles of our feet. It's a whole person kind of thing, a whole body kind of thing. It could be talked about forever, but on its face, it is also extremely simple. We often don't really strive and wrestle with God in prayer about the things that we care most about. If I made a list over the last two weeks of the things that I have most worried about, most concerned about, things that I'm thinking about the most, I sometimes shudder to think at the amount of time spent in conversation, in writing, in complaining, in fretting, the moments before going to bed, rehearsing them over and over and over in my brain. That side of the scale would be weighed down like tons and tons and tons, and then a little, little droppings of prayer on the side. And one of the things I believe that is a call from Paul's life, certainly from the life of Jesus, who had a very important mission. Jesus had a very important mission in the world, 
It was so important, and he had so much to do in a shortened life, only three years of ministry, that he had to spend many times whole evenings away from his disciples in prayer to his father. To be prayerful about what we hope to accomplish is not a throwaway thing, and it needs to be a commitment that we make. In the same way that one of the ways that we get to someone's soul is by thanking them, noticing them, being grateful for who they are and what they've done, there is no substitute, if you want to be of benefit to someone, there is no substitute than bringing them before God in prayer. To make a habit of saying to someone, can I stop and pray with you? Can we pray about that right now? To follow through on the moments when you say to someone, I'll be praying for that. I'm praying for that. For us to believe that prayer works and that it is an engine and a motivation, a mark of someone who is effective in mission needs to be a non-negotiable. I heard someone say one time that for many people, the most devastating reality of why we don't pray is that we think we can do it. We don't pray because we think we can do it. We've never gotten rid of the little toddler thing in us that rises up and slaps daddy's hand away as I'm do it. I do it. I do it. I'm building the tower. I got this. All of us believe that in our own strength, in our own efforts, if we just fret about it long enough, complain about it long enough, get another book idea, that we would eventually break through. And I think it's tempting sometimes. Maybe this sounds judgmental. I don't know. Maybe you cracked the code for praying. Have you cracked it? Are you just killing it? I don't don't want to be judgmental here. Maybe you've cracked the code. I'm telling you that I haven't. And so often I need a reorienting back, a reminder, a slap across my mug to say, hey, you talk about this a lot. Are you praying about this? And then to see if God might answer prayer. So two marks so far. I know I'm trying, to, I'm trying to rush through these, but two marks so far, or actually I should be rushing through these. Maybe you're saying to yourself, no, you're taking quite a while. I want to get through these. Two marks already, two motivations for mission, gratitude and prayerfulness. You want someone on your team, someone who might be effective, someone who can make a little difference spiritually? Look for people who are grateful and look for people who are prayerful. The next one, I think, is is one of my favorite things concerning the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul is clearly entrepreneurial. He is a leader. He is someone who is bold in many instances. And what he is often given short shrift on is the deep personal nature of his mission. He says to them in verse 11, and really it starts in the way that he is grateful for them and prays for them, what Paul envisions his desire for this relationship with the people in Rome is that he wants to know them personally. He says, I long to see you. I want to succeed in coming to you. I want to sit across the table. Paul was not interested in merely correcting. He didn't want to info dump as a professor. He didn't want them to feel or to stay at arm's length, but he knew full well that one of the best ways to impact anyone is to know them. Not only to know them, but for you to make yourself known to them. There is a reciprocal vulnerability that's built into Paul's ministry here, that he admits from the outset, in order to be of benefit and to make any progress in the mission that I desire among you, I need to know you and I want to know you. More than that, you need to know me and I want you to know me. I believe this is a wonderful motivation because it guards against the other thing that sometimes that we wish. Have you ever found yourself saying, yes, I would love to help and I'm going to help, but how can I do this at arm's length as possible? Have you ever felt that instinct? I feel it in myself sometimes and it's the weirdest thing. I feel an insatiable desire, movement to get involved and to help. And at the same time, a battering ram of desire to say, I don't want to get involved. No, no, I want to get involved and help. I just don't want to get involved. But I want to, I want to help you. I just don't want to get to know you. I, just, I want to be there, but I don't really want to have to be there. That, for me, and I, I watch Paul, and I think to myself this. No, this makes total sense. The guy commits to a mission. He feels a calling to a particular place, and he knows that in order to be of help to anyone, eventually you have to be 
present to them. You cannot, for the most part, now sometimes, I mean, of course, sometimes people, they write a track out with the gospel on it, they fly an airplane over closed countries, and then someone gets saved. I mean, that kind of thing has happened, of course. Sometimes people get to share their testimony at a 4-H club or something, and a grandma's listening in that you never meet. And I, I know that we can be effective at arm's length because God is gracious and He's amazing. That's how the world works. But I would just say this, that long-term, your greatest effect in the world, and Paul knows this, your greatest effect in the world is not going to come from your desire to say, yeah, I want to help, I just don't want to get that involved. Eventually, we're going to have to offer some of ourselves. And Paul knows as well that it's, it's got to be reciprocal. There is something of him that's going to be given to them. And then note how he says something of them that's going to be given to him. There will be mutual encouragement going back and forth. You see, that's the other thing. The most effective people in helping others are those who realize they have something to learn. It's not very effective to get to someone's soul to essentially say something like this. All right, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to talk the whole time, and I don't really want to get involved, you know, personally with you, so just listen for a while, okay? Also, I don't want to hear from you because you don't have anything to say that would even help me. I'm the expert here, and you're not. I just want you to notice that. I'm coming to you in strength. You're clearly in weakness. Are, are, is everybody clear? That doesn't work very well in trying to be helpful to people. But Paul knows, yes, Paul, the great apostle, instructed by Jesus himself, the one who knew the Old Testament front to back, cover to cover, who has been given the power of the gospel, proclaims it so articulately, that Paul says this to the Roman church that he doesn't know how it got planted, he doesn't know them personally yet, he's just heard of the testimony, here's what he says, oh, I'm sure of this. If we could get some face-to-face -face time, I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to grow, I'm going to be challenged by you. I can't wait to just mix it up with you so that I can grow. I think he has unlocked a key to something. He realizes that for many people, they think that their mission in serving others is for them. What I meant is for others. How about I'll say it more personally so that the pronouns don't get mixed up. I think sometimes that I'm helping others for them. And I wonder if God doesn't oftentimes think this. No, 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 Lance, you're helping them for you. You need to serve. You need to be humbled. You need to get to know someone else. You need to learn to listen. You need to be challenged by their problems. You need to be chastened by their insight. There is a mutuality to mission and to love in the world that is reciprocal, and Paul has unlocked this, and he can't wait to get there. He knows that there is some Christ in them that's going to meet the Christ in him, and then growth will happen. So, gratitude and prayerfulness and a personal nature to mission. We cannot be the kind of people who says, here's the thing, how do I become the most effective at the furthest away? The other thing that I'd want to say, though, is that there is a, a final mark of mission that is really two sides of the same coin, even though they seem very, very different. And I'm going to say two, two sides of this same coin, purpose or plans and providence. So mission is always going to be purposeful and providential. That's just the way that it's going to be. And here's what I mean. He says in verse 13, I have often intended to come to you. That means that Paul wrote out some plans. He probably talked to a ship captain. He's going out there to the sea, he's saying he sees the one on the side that says, Rome. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if they marked ships that clearly or not, but it just said Rome, like a bus system in a big city. It just said Rome, and I bet he goes over there and he talks to him. He says, oh man, are you guys going to Rome? When, when are you going to be back? Do you think I could catch the next boat? Sorry about that. Do you think I could catch the next boat? Do you, when, how, many, how many people get to go? How much does it cost? Do, can you go in the winter? Where would I sit? Could I get my own boat? How many of these things go? In other words, he has to make plans. In order for him to be effective, he's trying to make plans to go. He has intentions. It is generally true that we won't be able to stumble into being the most effective help to other people. I believe that it's a God-honoring thing 
for us to look around at ourselves and one another and the resources that we have and say, okay, what could we do? Let's plan this out. Let's think about this. And our entire staff right now is hearing me talk about all the very specific plans that need to be made for things. And they're saying, yes, yes, that's right. I'm often like very big picture thing like, well, let me tell you what the outcome could be. What if this? And then everyone else is like, how are we going to get there, Lance? How do we plan? It's a God-honoring thing to plan. You shouldn't be the kind of person who just says, I don't know. I guess we'll just be effective somehow. Make plans. But I want you to note this as well. He says, I've intended to come to you, parenthetical, but thus far have been prevented. At other moments in Scripture, sometimes he, he blames the prevention on God and sometimes he blames it on Satan. It's just that Paul seems to know this. Now, I'm going to make plans. It's just that they're not always going to come true because God is providentially in control of the mission. And anyone who desires to be of impact in the world needs to understand the tension between those two sides of the coin. We offer plans up to God and say, here's what I intend, and I'm going to pray for this, and I want to plan for this. And at the same time, we surrender those plans, knowing full well that sometimes in his providence, he will not always grant our wish. Because ultimately, one of the greatest marks of the mission is that it's not ours. It's God. He has prerogative over the mission. He knows how the church in Rome is going to get planted. He knows how it's going to be cared for. He knows, that if Paul's, he knows if Paul is necessary or not and if he should be there. And though I think it honors him to make plans, especially plans for the good of others, he will oftentimes stay his hand. And we need to receive both of these realities. The mission must be purposeful, but it is also ultimately up to God. It is God's prerogative. He is providential. So that was the big category under marks or motivations of mission. And now there's a, not as many subpoints, really just two. This idea then, if, if Paul's going to be helpful to Rome and he gets there, what does he want to do? How does he think he could help? I think it's what's, what this comes down to is what is going to be the way that he makes a difference? What is the power behind what he's going to bring? And we come to, I believe, one of the most poignant, one of the most direct couple of verses in all of Romans that sets, I believe, a sort of, it's a hallmark over all of the rest of the book. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here's what Paul knows. Not only does God have prerogative over the mission itself, the details of it, God has providence over when he will go and when he will come. He also realizes this, that where God has made a command to make disciples of all nations, that he is also given the means is one of the ways we surrender to God's sovereignty. He is sovereign over the end, but he also is sovereign over the means. Means and ends are both his. And what God has seen fit to do is to place all of the effectiveness in this world, all the spiritual help that we would give to one another, all of it comes to a head in the gospel. That it is this truth, this good news, it's God's gospel it's constantly mentioned to him. It's the power of God. God, you know what that means? It means that God is a good news preacher. God is the one who speaks good news. We're, our job is not out here to defend God as a PR firm. You know, God's a little obtuse. He's hard to deal with up there, and then we PR firm him up. No, it's God's gospel. He's the one that looks down to the world, and he speaks good news. He calls us to himself. It's that gospel that is going to be the agent of change, period. And until we come to grips that it is the gospel and the gospel alone that has the most power, we will constantly create our own little pea shooters to try to make a difference. One of the reasons I was outside, you know, sniffing the fall air yesterday in the morning is that we've been trying to clean up stuff in our backyard. Um, We've had some bushes and shrubs and, and then trees taken down. It was interesting, yesterday there were some things that needed to get left, that were left to be taken down. One very small kind of sideways ugly tree. It was like grown up Charlie Brown Christmas tree a little bit. And we needed to take it down and had a branch that was falling. And so I thought, well, I can do this. All the hard stuff's been done. I can do this. And I marched into the garage and I pulled out the electric chainsaw that I bought when I first moved here in 2013. It is, it's a rebranded Fisher-Price chainsaw, I think. 
You know how in China they just switch the labels? I'm not sure, but I think it's that. And over the next three to four hours, I noted something. I noted how difficult it was for me to get through the smallest little trunks of trees. I basically was like having to butter knife the thing through, even though it's electric and it goes like a chainsaw, kind of. You know what I felt the lack of? I felt the lack of power. Especially having watched a few weeks ago, we had trees taken down in our yard. Have you ever watched professional tree crews take down trees? They're unbelievable. They have cranes that can lift buildings, essentially. They have chainsaws that just whip through things. Sometimes they have whole machines that on the end of them, the whole end of the front of the tractor is a saw. Like It's like something out of a nightmare. They're just chasing you. This huge saw. And I could stand in my backyard and I'm just watching in about 12 minutes, guys climb tree, huge crane come over, chainsaws whip through the bottom of it, and then they just pick this whole massive 40-foot pine tree just gets lifted up and dropped over on the road like it was nothing. They had power. Yesterday, I spent hours butter knifing through the tiniest little things you've ever seen. And often yesterday, I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if sometimes I do ministry like this. I wonder if sometimes I neglect or I don't have or I forget what real power is and I'm trying to go take out of the store of my own ideas and my own hype train or my own like cultural engagement or whatever it would be, some other thing that might affect the problem. And Romans comes to us in chapter 1 and tells us, and remember, there is great power. You guys have probably heard this by now, but this word here is the same word we get from dynamite. The dynamite of God for salvation is the gospel. If we hope to, this is what this means. It means that if we hope to make a difference in the world, then we will remember and try to leverage as much as we possibly can the most powerful thing in our arsenal. That is the good news that God is redeeming the world, reconciling it to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. That there is hope for sinners. That God has somehow found a way to both be just and the justifier of the ungodly. That all of us who deserve punishment and wrath for sin, who one day, whether we believed in him or not, will stand before a just God, that there, are, there is hope for people like that. That good news that God has never, ever, ever given up, that he has relentlessly pursued, that he initiated again and again and again, that he spoke through the prophets and gave the law and made the promises and bound himself by covenants and then sent himself in the person of his son and then lived a perfect life and then subjected himself to the point of death, that that same God who loved us that much has spoken hope into the world and that it is power. And as, if we can leverage that power the much, as much as we possibly can, there's no other way to be more effective. Sometimes when we get impatient, or when we've made plans and we've intended to do something and it's not happening, how often we think to ourselves, well, is there any more power around here? Yeah, yeah, the gospel, that's totally fine. But what if we did, like, hip, oh man, I, anything I say, you're going to think I'm judging some ministry or church or place. Um, we just judge churches and play. I don't know what else to say. Like, we shouldn't do that. But the point is, me being pithy or witty or harsh or bold or offensive or cool or hip or smoke machines or lightning axe shows or prosperity promising or whatever substitute you might want for telling people, no, 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 here's the thing. You're way worse than you thought. You deserve hell way worse than you thought. And just so you know, there is way more hope than you ever imagined there'd be. Let me tell you about Jesus. To trust and believe that God has given dynamite power, explosive power in that word and that that is the thing that will change. That must be the mark of who we are. Because God has determined, this is how I'm going to change the world. You know how I'm going to change the world? I'm going to proclaim what I've done in goodness for them. 
Now, here's the trouble, and Paul hits it right at the outset. Why is it so hard if God has told us, hey, you're my people, and there's hope, and I changed you by the gospel, and just so you know, I've given you the gospel, this is how you can make a change in the world. Why sometimes do we neglect it? It's like God's out there with his crane and his amazing, powerful saws, and like the, he's just waiting to come in and pick everything out, and I'm like, I got this. Didn't you see, Did you see what I, I, I got this? Why do we do that so often? Well, he just hits it straight on, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. What an interesting thing for Paul to say. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. One commentator says this. He says, I can't help but believe that there would be no sense in declaring that you are not ashamed unless you may have felt the temptation to shame at some point in the past. My guess is is that Paul understands how tempting it can be to be ashamed of the gospel, and more than that, he recognizes the temptation in the hearer that we will be attempted to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't know why I can so often shrink under moments of people asking questions. I don't know why I can so often be more afraid of my own reputation. I don't want to be seen as different. I don't know why I fear for someone's very temporal confusion or offense than the eternal destination of their souls. I don't know why, but here's some ideas. Some of this little list of of why was helpful was put together by Tim Keller of some reasons why he believes that people are ashamed And it's because there is some offense that's given with the gospel. What we're afraid of when we talk to people is I don't want to offend them. And the reality is that some of this will offend them. Here's what he says. First, the gospel can be offensive and maybe there'd be some shame because it tells us salvation is free and undeserved. And for many people, that is totally insulting. For the Jewish people, it was very insulting to hear that the gospel was free. In other words, they saw themselves as spiritual successes, not failures. And if you preach that gospel, it may offend moral and religious people because they have built their lives hoping that their decency gives them a hand up or a leg up on other people. So it can be offensive to tell people, no, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter how religious and moral you are, uh, this has to come free and it's undeserved. Second, the gospel can be something that we're ashamed of because it tells us that Jesus died for us because we were so wicked that only the death of the Son of God could save us. Imagine telling someone that they, and not only them, but all of humanity is so wicked that only the death of God, the Son of God could save them. This offends people who have a very, very stubborn popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. That at their core, everyone is good and they're just trying and it's been the effects of the world. Now, the world and the, and the fallenness of this place it really does affect people. Trauma is a real thing. The ongoing effects of abuse is a real thing. We're not discounting that. But there is a notion, a philosophy, a cultural philosophy that says ultimately the only thing wrong with people is all of the bad stuff that happened to them that wasn't their fault and that innately everyone is good. And the gospel comes in and says, no, I'm sorry, here's the deal. By nature, everyone is sinful and wicked, and it's only the grace of God that you're not even as bad as you could be. And that is offensive to say. Third, the gospel is offensive by insisting that the only way to God is through Jesus. This offends a modern sensibility that all ways are fine, and that any nice person, any well-meaning person can find God in their own way and that we shouldn't judge people for this. Exclusive claims like those of the gospel are by their nature offensive to those who have believed that autonomy and individual self-expression and ultimately a pluralistic idea of religion means that anyone, anywhere can find their own path. This feels closed and that is difficult to tell people. Finally, another reason why we might be tempted to be ashamed is that when we describe the gospel and that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus, we realize that inherent in that, that the story of Jesus is a story of serving and humility and suffering. 
And that the way that Jesus, who we're called to follow, has accomplished these things is that he gives up his life. And this offends a lot of people who want salvation to be a coronation of themselves rather than a complete death to themselves. And I might as well stop saying themselves. This can be offensive to me who wants my life to be a coronation of my successes. Ultimately, the gospel begs people to come and die, to give up, to surrender, to let go, and this can be offensive. But, Paul says, I have committed and become convinced that I am not ashamed of this gospel, because at the end of the day, it is the power of God, and there's no greater power than that, and it is the way that people are saved. It's for salvation to everyone who believes. There's no other kind of person. He's made a point a number of times that he's under obligation to Jewish people and Greek people and barbaric people and Gentiles. He's committed to the power of God because quite simply nothing else works. We as a church must be not ashamed of the gospel because we don't have anything else to offer. I really believe this needs to come down to it. You can't offer someone something better than the power of God to save them. You just can't. There's just, you can't offer them a, a temporal, like a, a soul tata, like everything's going to be okay. You can't offer them redeeming or, or, or redemption or healing in any other way. You can't offer them hope in any other way. You can't offer them forgiveness in any other way. You can't offer them relationship that's better than being reconciled to the God who created them. There's just nothing else to offer. No greater power. And so I would, hopefully, with Paul, and I would want us to as well, to recognize the very real and ongoing temptation to shame. I don't think Paul would have written it any other reason. It's not like back then they didn't have any of these modern problems that we do where we're, where we're tempted to be timid and we don't know what to say, or we don't know how to interact. He must have known it. So I would want us to recognize the temptations to shame, the times when we do not say, when we, when we hold back the things that really motivate us, when we're not willing to be vulnerable with others, the reality of the depth of our spiritual life, when we are not willing to step into situations because we know it may cause ripples. We must recognize those moments of shame and ask God to remind us and to reveal to us the reality that there's nothing better that we can offer them. There is no greater power. So, what we do, at least especially, how about I say this, not at least, but especially in a church. We must be unashamed and committed to proclaiming in every possible way that we can. And he uses the word preach here. I want you to note that. He has a personal relationship with them, but he says in verse 15, I want to come to preach the gospel to you. Preaching is, uh, is not, just, not just instructing. It's like a, it's passion plus instruction smashed together. Is that idea. He wants to preach to them the gospel. He wants to hold forth the gospel. Scripture says that we as Christians are like those who, who hold forth the gospel as a shining light out in the world. And in many ways, like our, our stance as a church is like Lady Liberty. We've got one thing that's powerful, one thing that's effective, and anyone who comes in, we're standing there like this. It means that we organize our prayers and our songs, that we rehearse the Lord's Supper together as often as we can. We talk about the gospel. We describe the testimony of our own lives and the way that we've been impacted by the gospel. We pray the gospel. We serve in the spirit of the gospel. The good news of Jesus needs to take shape in everything that we do. Now, I want to say this unless you're hearing something wrong. Not being ashamed of and preaching the gospel doesn't mean that we only preach simple or shallow things. It doesn't mean that we try to dumb everything down to the lowest level possible. In fact, this truth, the reality that God is redeeming all of, all of creation through Jesus Christ, that truth is so expansive and so deep 
that when we commit to that gospel, it will impact everyone, everywhere, every thought will be taken captive to Christ, every sin will be brought to light in Him, every motive of every person's heart, every person we encounter will be changed in the way that we interact with them through the light of the gospel, our experience of our own lives and suffering will be changed by the gospel, the way we encounter and think about sickness will be changed, our receiving of things and our experience of prosperity will be changed by our understanding of the gospel, death itself and grief will be changed and upended, and eventually what we begin to see is, wow, is there anything else in all of the world that touches so much of life? The answer is no. We focus not simply on the gospel, but singularly on the gospel. And by proclaiming the redemption of God through the gift of His Son, we will touch all aspects of life. It'll change the way we serve the vulnerable and the poor. It'll change the way that we care for and speak to those who are self-righteous and morally upright. It'll change how humble we are, grateful we are, prayerful we are. I mean, I can't think of a thing that's not impacted. Jesus came and he said, the whole cosmos, the whole world is going to be impacted by me. One day I'm going to reign everything. And I'm having a hard time finding a molecule or two that's not impacted by this reality. So ultimately, God is providentially in control of the marks of mission. He's given us the power, which means he's in control of the means of the mission. And our hope and our prayer is that we would not hide. Man, it comes down to kids' songs sometimes. We have the light of the world, and we don't want to hide it under bushel. We want to set it forth with as much clarity as we can, knowing that if we ever, ever, ever desire to make a difference, it must be through this. Let's pray. God, thank you for this gospel. It's what's changed us. The reality of, of Jesus and what he's done for us, we don't have hope outside of this. I pray that when we're tempted to trust in other things, our own reasoning, our moral goodness, our planning, our scheming, our programs, I pray that you would bring us back again and again and again. You have given us great power. I pray that we wouldn't be ashamed of it. God, I confess to you, times when I have shrunk back. I have been too careful. I have been self-preserving. I've not wanted to get too invested. Forgive me. And God, as a, as a people, I pray that you would make us so alive to, so in love with what you've done for us in Christ, that we would not be ashamed of it. Help our singing, our praying, our serving all of it, to singularly point to the power of God for salvation in the gospel. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.